Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts and our new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. I'm delighted to introduce this morning's talk, which forms part of our ongoing Curator's Introduction series, which gives behind-the-scenes insight into RA exhibitions examining some of the key themes and highlights on display. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome not one, but two curators, who together with the RA internal curator, Per Rumberg, curated The Great Spectacle, an exhibition exploring 250 years of the summer exhibition and its impact on art in Britain and around the world. To speak today, we welcome Professor Mark Hallett, who is the Director of Studies at the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art in London. His many books include the prize-winning Reynolds, Portraiture in Action in 2014. He has also curated or co-curated numerous exhibitions, including Hogarth at Tate Britain in 2007. Joining Mark, we welcome Dr. Sarah Turner, who is the Deputy Director for Research at the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art in London. She is also the co-editor of the award-winning digital journal British Art Studies, which is co-published with the Yale Centre for British Art. She is also the visiting senior lecturer at the Courtauld Institute of Art. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Sarah and Mark to the stage. Thanks very much indeed, Amy. And it's nice to hear about the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. And just to extend an invitation to you all, we have a very busy programme of events and talks and seminars at the centre. Many of you might not know about it, but please feel uh, welcome to find out more about the centre and about our activities which complement those here at the Royal Academy really well, we think. But here we're, to talk, we're going to be talking together to you about the development and the organisation, the thinking behind the great spectacle, the exhibition that's currently on uh, to accompany and complement the summer exhibition uh, this year, which of course has been getting so many astonishing reviews and attention. And we're really pleased that the great spectacle too has been getting a very positive response. A rather different show, as all of you already seen it will, will recognise. So we thought we'd take you on a kind of behind-the-scenes journey into the organisation of the show. And it began for me, at least, and a few hours later for Sarah, a few years ago in this place, Franco's. <laughs> Some of you might know it, around the corner. It's a rather smart uh, restaurant and cafe that I didn't really know that well myself. I think it's in German Street, I seem to remember. I had an invitation from Charles Saumerer Smith, the chief executive here. I think it was in 2014, it's worth remembering. Uh, to come and have breakfast, and, 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 but no agenda or suggestion about why we should meet for breakfast. But I've known Charles for years, and uh, I was intrigued, so I went along for breakfast. And he, in his very uh, relaxed and elegant way, that is classically Charles, talked about the possibility of organising a show that would look at the whole history of the summer exhibition and to take place in 2018, of course, this great anniversary year. And right at the start, Charles was thinking that this would be a show that would complement and accompany this year's show. So it's interesting to realize how far ahead people are thinking about exhibitions like this one. And he said, I've got a proposition for you, Mark. I'd like you and your colleague, Sarah Turney, heard a lot about Sarah and knew what amazing work she was doing in 20th century British art. I'd like the two of you to think about, at least, creating a show, exploring the history of that exhibition. And I was absolutely thrilled and honored and privileged to have been asked. So I kind of rushed back to the Paul Mellon Center rather quickly. <laughs> 
burst into Sarah's office and said, I've had a really interesting proposal this morning. Are you on for doing an exhibition together on the, on the history of the summer exhibition? Of course, Sarah, knowing her, she went, fantastic, bring it on. That's, <laughs> uh, that's her classic phrase. So the two of us uh, went to work, didn't we? Yeah. And started thinking about it. And we, first of all, we needed to put a proposal together for Charles. And also, to, Charles, in the conversation, made us realise or made us think about the fact that there's been one great exhibition on this topic already, and it took place in 2001 at the Courtauld uh, Institute, or the Courtauld Institute Galleries at Somerset House. It's called Art on the Line. And this focus, you might, this is the cover of the catalogue, and there's an actual photograph of the display in the great room at Somerset House. And this exhibition focused on uh, the first few decades of the, uh, of the summer exhibition's history when it was located at Somerset House. But what Charles wanted us to do, and what the Royal Academy wanted us to do, was to, of course, explore something far longer, the far longer history. So we went to work thinking about something that was very different from the, great, from, the, from the art on the line, and that would, as I said, explore this longer history. And so we started putting a preliminary proposal together. So do you want to say yeah. a word or two about, this is, it looks rather scrappy. <laughs> These are just notes we found in our offices, but we thought you'd be interested in seeing yeah. how it actually develops. Yeah, we wanted to give you today a, a behind the scenes tour. And so we've been rifling through our filing cabinets and notebooks just to see really the, some of the practicalities behind curating and putting together an exhibition. And this really is the sort of back of, back of the envelope stuff. These are the first days of us thinking about how are we going to tell the story of the longest running contemporary art exhibition in the world that has run from 1769 to the present day, remarkably without a break for every year through both world wars in Britain, which was a remarkable achievement. Um, and so telling that 250 year history as an exhibition as well, not as a book, as a visual experience. So we just started to think through these ideas and, and in, a, in a way just put together this very simple structure um, you can see here that we were thinking from the very beginning that it would be a chronology, that there would be a sense of moving through that 250-year uh, history. You can see that we're um, already playing with titles, questioning ourselves, 2018, double <laughs> underlined um, on there. So reminding of ourselves of all the work that we had to do. And yes, what, so we came up with an initial proposal that we sent back to Charles and to Tim Marlowe, the exhibitions, the head of exhibitions here, and to, and to Christopher Lebrun, of course, the president. All three of them and their colleagues were wanting to know a bit more about our proposal. So we came up with that introductory proposal that Sarah just showed you with a, a, a paragraph outlining our vision for the show, and then started talking about the kinds of uh, uh, work that each exhibition gallery would do within the display. We had, knew we had 10 spaces, and we were thinking about which what, what we could do in each of the spaces. And we faced a challenge, didn't we, yeah. Sarah, about the, the character of the spaces that we were working yeah. with. So early on, we were given um, the fine rooms, which the exhibition's in, the Majeski fine rooms, and part of um, the... What it, the summer exhibition normally occupies these rooms, the large Western room, the small Western rooms, Gallery 2 and Gallery 1. So we knew we had this space. And they're quite particular spaces, very strong architecture, um, quite small as well, some of those rooms. So we saw this as a productive challenge to us, didn't we? Um, how were we going to tell uh, the story of 250 exhibitions in these, you know, fairly modest, full of character rooms? And, and that really, the, 
the physical space, I would say, designed the way that we were thinking right from the very beginning. Yeah. And here you can see photographs of the two different kinds of spaces that we were faced with. On the one hand, one of the fine rooms, and you can see architecturally heavily decorated with inter interior decoration, all these frames, the mirrors. We couldn't play around with that, those rooms too much. We couldn't pull those mirrors down, pull those gild that grade, gilding down. They're grade one listed, Mark. They're grade one listed, <laughs> as I was reminded. So we couldn't recreate and so, uh, uh, um, the kind of spectacle that you expect uh, from the summer exhibition uh, in these rooms very easily. So that made us think about things. And talking with Per Rumberg, especially our co-curator, and Anna Testar, who worked very closely with Per as part of the internal curatorial team, and with Christopher and Tim and Charles, we realized that what might work best is if we distilled the exhibition, rather than trying to recreate, in the early rooms especially, the feel of the contemporary uh, summer exhibition, we would choose works of art that we thought told the most interesting stories about the display, and themes that would allow the visitor uh, to walk through not only a history of the summer exhibition in the Royal Academy, but also, in many ways, a history of British art and some of its most important uh, practitioners and artworks. And so this is a piece of paper from Sarah's. Uh, I, I have uh, the nicer handwriting. That's how you can uh, you tell You can read my... <laughs> Sarah's handwriting. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, again, so again, we can see um, here, and again, this, if you've been to the exhibition, you will recognise the, the narrative and the, the flow of the exhibition is the same. So going in here, this is a vestibule area, and the shop is there now, but um, this is the tenant gallery into the Reynolds gallery. And so you can see it's dividing up these um, rooms into themes, which have, again, largely stayed the same. And we, we divided up the work a little bit, because Mark, as uh, Amy said, works on the 18th century and is, a, is one of the world's experts on Reynolds. So he was going to take the earlier the part. The Reynolds room. The Reynolds room, one. yeah. <laughs> no fighting over that one. Um, and I work mainly on the early 20th century, but I've taught widely on Victorian art and um, into the mid-20th century. So I was going to take the sort of second half. But we're a very collaborative uh, pair. We work together very closely in our daily lives. So we wanted to make sure that there were spaces where we were also working together to think about the selection yeah. and the whole overall conceptualization of the show. So especially the contemporary works, yeah. um, the introduction. Uh, and so it was really, again, a, a conversation conversation throughout these years of making this exhibition happen. Um, what kinds of works did you want to see? How are we going to tell the story as well um, mm. through this chronological hang? So it's quite nice. You can see MLH, SVT, their initials. That's us sitting down over a coffee and sharing things out, essentially. And, and then starting to really think about the display itself and the works that we wanted to, uh, to, uh, to, to request. And what's very interesting, again, in terms of putting the, an exhibition together, working with Pear and with Anna. So we, we talked together a lot about the kinds of works we'd like to, uh, to request. And once we got those, and once we started getting encouraging noises from the owners of these works, they may well be willing to lend them. And there's a lot of diplomatic conversation that goes on in that respect, by the way. <laughs> you know, travels to, phone calls with, uh, extended conversations with uh, owners and their Lying representatives. Lying on the ground in That's front right. of That's yeah. right, yeah, saying that we're not worthy, we would love to borrow <laughs> your, your paintings. Paintings that travel from all over the world. A writer Derby that's come from Michigan. Uh, a Reynolds that's come from, uh, from Wadston Manor. 
Um, another painting, the, the, the games were here on the right from Dulwich. And of course, we traveled often to those galleries and talked to the directors and said, we'd, why, we had to persuade them this is a picture that they can release for this exhibition. And it's got a really important role to play in the mm -hmm. exhibition otherwise, because of course, always for galleries and museums, they're thinking, well, we're going to lose one of our major paintings here for and a number of months. private uh, lenders. I remember yes. a conversation with the person who owns um, the Gary Hume Purple Pauline. That's yes. normally in a private lender's bedroom. <laughs> and so he had to kind of consider whether he wanted to have a, a, a space on his wall. I'm sure he has other works of art that he can put on there, but it's, you know, it was an, it's an important, very personal, very intimate work for him. So, um, you know, it's really Passing interesting. Passing with purple Pauline. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite difficult. Yeah, so those kind of, again, yeah. those, all those many collaborations and conversations that go into, um, and I think that's why sometimes people are quite surprised or... Um, interested to hear that the show starts or the planning for a show often begins four or five years in advance because you often don't get the loans you want as well for various reasons um I know um, there's another show on at the moment, Aftermath, at Tate Britain, and particularly for the early 20th century, we were looking for the same works sometimes. So I, for example, Dog Proctor's Morning um, has a very important summer exhibition history, but it's a Tate work, and Tate had already committed it to the Aftermath show. And I think sometimes, you know, you have a kind of evening where you're a bit down in the dumps and you think... Oh, our They're all saying no. What, yeah, what, what will happen when we don't have Dob Proctor's morning in the show? But as Mark said, come on, there's, a, there's, <laughs> there there's 250 years of, uh, of exhibitions to work from. So yeah. again, it, but it's that process of negotiation. And I think for me, that being a, you know, the experience of curating the show really, um, you know, taught us a lot about that. Yeah, that's a great thing about this project for us is that we had thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures to choose from. That was also the great challenge. Problem, How do you yeah. choose the pictures you wanted? Yeah. Well, for the Reynolds room, Sarah said, as Sarah said, I was working with Pear and Anna and Sarah in terms of the organization of this uh, room. And so these are some of the works that we were very lucky to, uh, to uh, got agreements for, to, to borrow. And so what you start working with are these elevations. So the Academy provides you with these to scale images of the uh, and elevations of the walls of the different galleries. And then they also very, very ha uh, nicely provide to scale reproductions of the works that you want to show. And so basically you start sticking them on these papers. Or, well, it's all done electronically now, by, or by electronically. Even that sounds old-fashioned. Digitally, by computer. <laughs> and so then you start laying things out. You can see that was my first thought. Very straightforward. I think there should be... And if, if, again, if you've been to the show, you'll see that these two pictures there, but as you, can, as you might remember, that they are, in fact, the other way around. I thought they would work better uh, in the other way around for various reasons. And I can talk about those. I mean, this, is, this one on the right is a, a more classical, familiar kind of Reynolds full-length portrait. This, this one on the left from the Barber collection is a more modern, maybe a more surprising kind of Reynolds painting. It's a double portrait. So we thought, I thought it'd be nice if that operated alongside the gains for a double portrait that you see on the right. Yeah, do you so, want to talk about the models? Yeah, so you do, once you've got your ideas on paper as well, we, uh, the Academy didn't have a to-scale model of the fine rooms, and so we had one built because again, that physical relationship of how the works are going to sit together. And because we were very keen that we were going to tell a story about the summer exhibition, we wanted to see what the works would look like together. Um, and then we had great fun. It's sort of like a doll's house moment of putting the works um, into this model. And you can see here um, the Elizabeth Frink in the middle of the room, thinking particularly for the sculptural objects. We had to choose... Um, 
very carefully which sculptures we were going to use. Um, again, because the spaces are not huge, the government indemnity, which ensures the exhibition, says that you have to have a two-metre um, space around the sculptures so people don't bump into them and knock them over. So once you've got your sculpture and these two-metre-wide safe zones, it actually really affects the flow of how many people you can get in the room and how many objects. So again, all these practical things that I think are so important to the intellectual and the conceptual narrative um, of the show. So maybe we should tell you a little bit more about the history of the exhibition mm. um, and, again, why it was founded and um, why it's so unique, really. I think that's something to say. It wasn't always called the Summer Exhibition. Uh, when the Academy was founded in 1768, it was decided then that there would be an annual exhibition open to all artists of merit. And so that idea of an open submission exhibition has stayed the same. And again, it's very interesting to see the things, the constant themes, the constant threads that have run across the whole history of the 250 years of that exhibition. So um, the founder members decided in 1768 that they would have this annual exhibition open to all artists of merit. And that was in December. And they had an exhibition that opened the following year in... April, April. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just, just testing, um, in April. So very quickly, it, these things started to happen. And again, those founder members, such as Reynolds, um, Angelica Kaufman, we have a work by her that was exhibited in the 1769 exhibition. So again, it's a rather wonderful historical relationship you have with some of these works, imagining them in that first exhibition. That took place in Pall Mall, in rented premises, which I think were owned by a printer. So it was all kind of quite hastily put together. And again, I think that's something that is a constant theme, that the summer exhibition has to happen really quickly, from the date of artists submitting works to the incredible work of the selection committees, the hanging committees, just in a few short months, the publication of the catalogue, all that has to happen. So here we have... Um, on the left. Actually, do you want to talk a bit more about yeah, these? This is, yeah, these are some early views of the, of the exhibition. And we wanted in the exhibition, the first room of the exhibition, to really introduce the history of and the character of the summer exhibition. And that's what we do in what's called the tenant room, the first room that you walk into, which has got quite dark blue walls, but great focus on the works of art. So we've got works of art, prints and drawings, that represent each of the different yeah. venues uh, in the in the exhibition's history. And this is, this is the earliest ever image of the summer exhibition. It's from 1771. It's from, as Sarah says, these rooms in Pall Mall that uh, were occupied by the Academy while work was going on in terms of building a new uh, venue for the, uh, for the site in Somerset House. And interestingly, you already see that the walls were packed with images of a very miscellaneous kind, portraits, history paintings, landscapes, genre pieces, still lives, were crowded together and jostled together like a collage on the wall. And that was very much the character of the, uh, of the images on the wall. And of course, as always, the display and the spectacle includes the miscellaneous character of the crowd. And they were getting big audiences. 14,000 people went to these early exhibitions. 20,000 people, so quite a large number for a small city like London compared to today. And again, it was a relatively miscellaneous crowd. Okay, there were the very wealthy and the elite, but also a broad, what we might call a middling or even a middle-class audience went to the exhibitions and started enjoying them. And satire, and prints off like these two often offered a kind of a gentle satire in the way in which uh, connoisseurs would 
peer very closely at the images. I, just, I want you to remember that. that figure as well that I'm yeah. pointing to you now, because we'll, we'll, we'll find this type of, of viewer, this, yeah. this cultured connoisseur, coming up again. So just, just remember him and peering with his nose pressed against the painting. And, and again, men and women. It was very interesting. It was very much a, 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 an exhibition and event geared to both sexes. And children. Children too. You sometimes find images with dogs, and we're never quite sure whether that's artistic license or whether dogs, poodles, <laughs> were wandering around, spaniels, wandering around the it's Somerset Incredibly cultured dogs. Very cultured dog. dogs, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, King Charles spaniels, maybe. But, uh, and then also, there's a great, lovely little detail in this first image here of the boy slumped on a chair, obviously bored, and that kind of classic thing of taking a young child or a teenage child around the show, saying, you know, when are we going to go? How long are you going to be looking at the pictures? That was caught in 1771 too. <laughs> this is a great room in Somerset House, and then we move on to talk about some of the, in that same first room, to talk about a painting like this one, which is one of the porters from that early period, who, uh, it's a fantastic picture, which again was exhibited very, very early on in 1792 which we got in the show, and it shows one of the people who would actually greet you at the opening of the exhibition each year, holding one of the blue tickets that gave you admission and one of the catalogues that you could take with you. And you can see behind him uh, this famous staircase that still exists, of course, at Somerset House. You can walk up today, this, this uh, staircase, already crowded with people and with a, a bust behind uh, of the Farnese Hercules. Not the Farnese Hercules, the Belvedere Torso, sorry. <laughs> Where's my art history going? Yeah, it's um, not just British art, you no, know. No, that's true, it's true, it's true. <laughs> uh, and then this great image by Rawlinson, which satirises that crowd of figures. Uh, we did talk about whether this should be on the poster for the exhibition, by the way. That's one of the interesting debates you have. What should go on the poster? And this, some of us love this idea, but some people thought it might be slightly too racy or yeah. dodgy. You know, this image of all these leering connoisseurs, lascivious yeah. connoisseurs, <laughs> and all these tumbling... Uh, uh, young women, so maybe that would have been a bit tricky. <laughs> so we stuck with a good uh, alternative. Oh, here we are. And then this is uh, one of my snaps from the exhibition. You can see I was taking these photographs as the, the hang was happening. So you'll see often bubble-wrapped uh, pictures, uh, farrow and ball paints, uh, tins of paint and things like that. But we also, um, and obviously you can see this in much better, higher definition quality in the exhibition itself. Um, but uh, William Powell Frith's exhibition of the private view, um, painting of the private view of 1881, which he exhibited in 1883, I think again is one of those images which is kind of an iconic glimpse of the exhibition. Um, again, those ideas of the press of visitors. Um, Leighton is in the middle there, the president at that time. And here, just on the right, is that very similar figure, the, the middle-aged connoisseur, with his, he's got his spy glasses, looking right up um, close at the painting. And some works in the exhibition, particularly in the 19th century, became so popular, became so famous, they were the blockbusters of their day. And I think in an age before film, um, it, in an age before television, the idea that these images became, they were the blockbusters, they were the most well-known images um, of their time. The, the crowd was so dense um, in the exhibition. Sometimes in the 19th century, you had nearly 400,000 people visiting the summer exhibition, in incredible numbers. That police, there had to be a police guard, there had to be rails put in front of paintings just to try and get people to, to back off. And I think Frith's paintings are particularly interesting because often he has this um, freeze-like composition of people showing the dress of the day, showing how people were interacting with art. So the summer exhibition, in a way, gives us a glimpse into... Um, 
exhibition culture and how people were consuming um, art through from the 18th century through to the present day. So then we walk from that tenant room into the Reynolds room, which you've already yeah. said a bit about, but we'll, so we'll just kind of, um, some of the highlights again, I think mm. we, we really um, were delighted to get these loans, uh, one from the United States, and then, as Mark said, one from the Watson Collection on the left. And I think really, again, showing Reynolds' in, is importance in the RA and developing the idea of the annual exhibition and maybe developing what an exhibition picture should be. And Mark, do you want to say more about that, how artists, once they saw what the power of the, the annual exhibition and how it could create and generate interest for a work of art, they started to make pictures specifically for the exhibition to create celebrity, to create yeah. an interest. Yeah, right. For, it's, it's really worth saying this. For, I mean, it's to some extent still the case for a number of academicians mm. today that's, and for a number of artists today, but in the 18th and 19th centuries, the majority of Britain's leading artists would, work, would spend their whole year focusing on and thinking about the summer exhibition. They'd spend the winter preparing works, a portfolio of works that they would then send on to the display. And it, of course, it was because it was the main form of self-advertisement and self-promotion, mm. that often these works would not necessarily be for sale in the show, but there would be forms of advertisement that would be meant to encourage patrons to come back. And the challenge always for artists in that period, as it is in some ways today, is to how do you make sure your work stand out from the walls? These crowded walls with pictures where so many other uh, images are crowding for people's attention. And Reynolds was one of the first masters to really work out what would make a picture stand out from the wall. One thing you might even get a sense of today and from our, walking through our show, one of the kind of pictures that works brilliantly in a summer exhibition, or did do, and has done for many, many centuries or decades, is the portrait, the full-length portrait. Partly because the portrait, by its definition, gives air it gives the subject a bit of air around itself, if you see what I mean. It can, it can, in a sense, stand free of all those images around it. The other interesting thing, it's a really basic thing, but one thing that really works well for a portrait in, a, in an exhibition is that it's in a bold, often white color. So white, pale dress, or a you know, bright red, or something like that, is another way in which uh, pictures stand out. And Reynolds is brilliant at creating these fantastically elegant silhouettes that would stand out, you'd be able to see right from across the room, and that would get your attention, and that would, in a way, invite you to come closer and to have a closer look. And also, he was brilliant at conjuring up both fashionability, you see this is Mrs., uh, Mrs. Lloyd, who's got this very fashionable contemporary hairstyle, and yet also making this a work that seemed to have uh, classical elegance and dignity. One last thing about how you use light. It's rather like how light is used on stage design or theatre design today. Look at the way in which he makes sure that his figure and her head and her shoulders are illuminated by light. Look at her hands, the right writing hand that alludes back to Shakespeare's As You Like It. Even the left hand that rests on the pedestal behind it. It's dipped in light. Look at her feet, dipped in light. Even her central fig part of her figure here, dipped in light. Other parts are shadowed. There's this play between light and shadow that pulls the figure forward and also retreats it back into this partial environment. He was brilliant at conjuring up these images that would have a huge impact in the exhibition space. And just, yeah, do you want to talk about yeah. this paper? Hans? So again, these <laughs> very big works, um, these full-length, especially these full-length portraits in the Reynolds room. Um, again, you've got this very dominant ceiling, heavy architecture ceiling. Um, and so before any of the works went up on the wall, uh, Per Romberg, our curator here at the RA, said, we must absolutely do a paper hang, just again to get the feel of the physical um, look of the show. And so I just, lo I love this. When I went in, it was like seeing, I don't know, people, at, you know, when you go into a party and you're in your dressing gown, <laughs> I don't know, you're not quite... <laughs> 
You're not, they're not in their full finery yet, but they were there. You know, I could sort of imagine uh, Joanna Lee, sort of, or ghosts. I don't know, there was something, that the presence was there, uh, and it was really useful. Um, and we started to then move, some things moved around again at this stage. This was just in the week before um, the works arrived, and the installation period takes about three, three weeks to hang all the works. Um, I think my next slide shows... Oh, it was just an amazing, for me again, I hadn't been involved in a show of this size, so to see the technical team work was actually heart-stopping. And I was watching uh, Joanna Lee being hung on the wall. These are unglazed works. So what you see as it's going up on the lift, it's very, very, very heavy. And these guys are quite, you know, they do this for a living, they're quite, they work out, you know. Um, but you could see them sort of holding the weight of these works. And the work, because it's unframed, it's alive, it actually moves. So you see the canvas kind of just sort of gently move as well. So it was just an incredible sense of actually, it's not just putting a nail on the wall and hanging a work. Obviously, there's the physical weight of these works. But also, once this work had gone on the wall, Pear said, it's got to go up half an inch. It matters. And there's all these measurements about how high you should hang from the floor or the ceiling, depending on what else is around, um, you know, dado rails or um, cornices. Mm. And again, it was just amazing to see the difference that pushing it up just a little bit gave to us looking up at that kind of fantastic face yeah. of Joanna Lee. Okay, that's one of the things that's always a revelation, for, isn't it? It was for both of us, Sarah, was work, working with a curator who's got a great eye. And I have to say about Pear that he's got an unbelievable eye. And I think one of the things that people have been mentioning to us is how beautiful the exhibition looks in terms of its hang, and how elegant it looks in the way it's distributed around the rooms. Yeah. And, and yeah. we have to give Pear a huge yeah. amount of credit for that. And of we? course, we're very conscious that in the summer exhibition, when that work was first exhibited, it would have had a lot of other things going on right next to it, cheek by jowl. But again, our exhibition, we hope that that space gives you a chance to have a, a different relationship with the work, yeah. to really interact with it in its own terms as well. We were incredibly delighted to get this picture on the left because this is in many ways the first... Sarah was talking about the blockbusters of the summer exhibition. Uh, Chelsea Pensioners was in many ways the first great blockbuster of the summer exhibition. This, is, I think, it was the first picture to have a rail put in front of it. It was, yeah. Because of so many people wanting... And, of course, there was real worry about the damage that was, uh, could be created. This was commissioned by the Duke of Wellington, and it's an image of people celebrating the news of the great victory at Waterloo. And, so, and it was exhibited in uh, 1822. And in the catalogue, we explain the ways in which... The summer exhibition is often a place where many of the, the great themes and conflicts and debates mm, happening history. in national history mm. and culture are ex expressed visually. And this was the case here, because yeah. it's very interesting, because in this year, there are a number of pictures celebrating Waterloo as this great patriotic nationalistic victory. But at the same time, there are some other paintings in the same show, which we talk about in the catalogue, which offered a rather more somber and critical, critical mm -hmm. and, uh, message. Mm. So we combined works like that with pictures like the, some from, occasional picture from the Academy's own collection. We, couldn't, we could not not display this great painting of the Leaping Horse, which in many ways is one of a series of paintings that Constable produced, which brought him into prominence in the summer exhibition. He exhibited for years in the summer exhibition without getting much in the way of critical notice at all, Constable did. His pictures were rather small, and often their subject matters were seen as rather too modest and undemonstrative and unexciting. He went big, he started producing these six-footers, 
and, and started painting more brightly. He started using this, this white paint to animate and enliven his surface and started getting a lot of critical attention. We go on again to talk about it in the catalogue. His pictures were seen as really fresh and sparkly on the walls of the summer exhibition and also conjuring up that sense of fresh air and a walk through the English countryside, that feeling of wandering through where there's a bit of an English spring breeze. Rain's just been happening, but you breathe deeply into your nostrils and you get that feeling of freshness. Constable's scene is brilliantly conveying that kind of atmosphere in these yeah. pictures. And again, the importance of different kinds of genres. So Marx talked about portraiture, history painting, and contemporary scenes of everyday yeah. life but landscape becoming a really, really important theme for artists to pursue at the summer exhibition. And again, if you go to the 2018 summer exhibition, you'll see that actually landscape is quite a dominant genre still today. So we're charting as well longer histories of artistic style, aesthetic, uh, fashions, and you know, history of British art in many ways. So again, that longer history allows us to, to think about those trajectories. Again, here are just some more of my iPhone snaps. So, do you want to talk about the colours? <laughs> colours on the wall. We had we had a great we worked with a great designer um, who was on secondment from the National Portrait Gallery. And again, because we knew we couldn't do a big build in these fine rooms, um, that one thing we could do was paint them. And so we worked very closely with him to think about the colours of each room to give us a period feel to each uh, room. So there is a change. Um, and we knew there'd be no natural light, again, for uh, conservation uh, purposes. So we, we thought very carefully about the, the atmosphere created by... Um, by these paint colours. There are, of course, other well-known brands. I'm sure you'll recognise that one sat on the bench there. Quick, quick mention here. This was an interesting challenge for us, is that we couldn't take down these frames <laughs> that are already there. So we've got pictures in frames inside other frames. Yeah. And, and we uh, were really worried about this we room. We were so well, worried, we, we, but in fact, it worked out beautifully. Yeah, yeah. And again, the lighting and so on makes it. And it's quite brief. And we also didn't, rather than showing Turner's blockbusters, we chose some of Turner's more subtle, smaller pictures, which were really commended at the time for glowing from the walls and having a more subtle appeal, mm. rather than being uh, very splashy and spectacular. Yeah, this one's from uh, Berry Art Gallery, um, just north of Manchester. Um, so again, we'll keep up the pace, go yeah. and I'll walk through. And um, after the landscape room, we go into um, a room which really tells a story about how the summer exhibition formed friendships and groups. And so we wanted to... Um, tell the story of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and how the Pre-Raphaelite artists use a summer exhibition to launch the Brotherhood. So on your left, you have, I think, one of my favourite paintings, and I think it's still such an incredible work of art. To get close to it is such a privilege. Um, exhibited by John Everett Millet in 1849, it was the only work he sent to that year's summer exhibition, and he was just 19 years old. So I think not only in the technical ability of this work of art, but in that sort of well, bravura or bravado that perhaps only 19-year-old young men have, <laughs> of like, I'm going to send this in, it's going to be good. And it was selected. Um, Millet had been a student at the Royal Academy schools, so he was very much trained in the academic tradition. He was the youngest ever uh, student at that time. He, he entered the schools at just 11. He was called the child. Uh, and so people knew of him. They knew he was talented. Um, and he, he exhibited this work um, along with um, William Holman Hunt, also exhibited a work that year at Rienzi. And they were hung together 
on the line, which is the kind of the place that all artists want their work to be hung. How, how high is it? About eight feet high. Eight feet yeah. from the ground? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's that sort of, you know, right in people's sight lines. It's, a, it's the prime spot in the exhibition. So the young Millet and Hunt were extremely pleased with their position. They were quite surprised, actually, because in many ways this work rejected academic training. It rejected the teachings of the school. And it went... The, the, these painters wanted to look before... Um, they wanted to go pre-Raphael. They wanted to look to medieval art rather than to the great painters of the Renaissance and look at this kind of much tighter, much more jewel-like compositions of a... Like you can imagine a medieval altarpiece being the inspiration for something like this, much flatter in composition, not that sort of textured, heavy painting that we saw in The Constable, but this very, very neat, smoothly finished work. So there they are, and... You, you can't really see it on the reproduction, but you can definitely see it when you go and see the work. Uh, in the end of the bench, um, Millet carved or painted the initials PRB. And this is, again, the sort of launching of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. They didn't explain what they meant. It was a sort of insight, almost like a secret society of young, these young avant-garde artists trying to kind of cause a mini-rebellion from within. This work was actually very, it was quite warmly received. People noted its skill, its technical ability. It wasn't until 1850, the next year, when Millet exhibited Christ in the house of his parents, which is now at Tate, and that caused a huge media outcry. I mean, the critics just hated it. You know, he was slammed, and then it all started to happen. It exploded, and there was so much text written about the young pre-Raphaelite brotherhoods. Critics like John Ruskin came back in defense of them. And again, what we see is the birth of the art critic. In many ways, art criticism in Britain was built around the summer exhibition. And in, 18, in the 1870s, the, the exhibition was getting so crowded that the critics said, we can't possibly come on the same day as everybody else. We're, <laughs> we're special. Those critics. Yeah, yeah, we need room. And so the press day was invented in 1871 because the critics wanted a bit of their own time. They didn't want to mix with all us members of the public. And so again, that is something that the summer exhibition um, invented in many ways. Um, and again, on the, on the, on the right, um, on your right, you see a work by, another work by Frith. And as I was mentioning before, those incredible crowd scenes that Frith was well known for creating, I think, mirroring the spectacle of the great exhibition. And just a little... Uh, a little it's quite um, important how you create these sight, sight lines. Yeah. Through, through, because we've got this enfilade of rooms. And again, this, look, this is another thing that we work closely with the curators about, the, the, the image that you see, as it were, inviting you forward into the mm. show. This painting was so well received when it was exhibited that the Illustrated London News issued a reproductive engraving of it in, um, every week as a serial. They took sections of it because they knew it was kind of hard for everyone to get uh, up close to it. And Frith himself said, it, unless you get there before breakfast, there's no chance you'll see it because so many people are there. So the Illustrated London News did this very clever thing of making it into a, a sort of, they took it into a columns yeah. and made it into a serial. So again, those relationships between the press, making engravings of works to uh, promote them is a really important story. This work was sold um, to the... Um, to de uh, some dealers, Mrs. Lo Lloyds, and the Queen came on a private view and saw it. 
and decided that she would like it for her collection. So the dealers had to very uh, sort of nobly let the queen have it. And, but what they did is they did a deal with her and said, can we have the rights to the image um, if you have it for your private collection? And they made, again, one of the most popular engravings of the 19th century. So the commercial deals, again, nothing is new. This was there all through its history. Yeah, we just, just want to talk about some of the juxtapositions that mm. um, Sarah in these rooms wanted between works by Rodin, by Leighton, just again to bring different kinds of works together. I have to give Sarah huge credit, sorry, I'm going to steal this from you for a second <laughs> and make her blush a bit, because one of the things that when we were talking about the exhibition, even as, I mean, I don't know whether you think it's about today, but it still tends to be, an, uh, in terms of its history, an exhibition that's thought about primarily in relation to paintings, but it's had a great history in terms of sculpture and, of course, of architecture. So we mm. devote one of the rooms of the display to architectural models and drawings, but Sarah especially was saying, we've got to have sculpture in there too. And one of the great, I think one of the great of the exhibition are some of the sculptural works that we've included that have been primarily chosen by Sarah, including this beautiful Rodin. And, and if I can just jump forward, there's some of these other picture, other works like Lamia in the centre there. Mm. So sorry, I've jumped forward a bit no, there. No, no, what's funny about the Rodin is that um, Rodin was very, he knew again about, he was exhibiting at the French Salon and at exhibitions in, in Belgium as well. So the, the Academy exhibition in London is part of this network as well of European salon exhibitions. Um, and Rodin um, wanted his work to be shown in London. Again, knew that there was a lot of interest from other British sculptors, from patrons. Um, and the Age of Bronze, it was, when it was written about, it said, one of the critics said, this is the best thing in the whole exhibition, but like a lot of sculpture, it's very poorly displayed in that you can't walk all the way around it. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely to bring it back into the Royal Academy and display it so you can walk all the way around it? And again, for those government indemnity and securing it, we had to push it back against the, these uh, windows. So in a way, it's sort of, um, you know, his historic hang and that people were frustrated we tried, we tried. that they couldn't see yeah. the Age of Bronze's backside and that's still the case today so you have to go and have a little One peer day, around. Yeah. Um, I realised so yeah, we we, yeah. we've got so much to tell you so we'll go we'll through, speed up. we'll speed up a bit just to show you things well, yeah, again, like have, Laura Knight's yeah. work. And, and talk about female academicians yeah. actually. And so Laura Knight has the, um, well the accolade if that is the right word, of being the third woman to become a full um, Royal Academician in Eight, in 1768, there had been two founder members, Angelica Kaufman and Mary Moser, who were elected RAs. But it wasn't until the 20th century and until 1936 that another woman artist was elected as um, an RA. And that's quite an incredible, I think, fact for us to ponder. Um, Elizabeth but Butler, who's also in the show, in the 19, uh, a Victorian artist, narrowly, narrowly missed out. Um, again, her works were incredibly well received. And and, uh, but she wasn't voted in. So it wasn't until we get to this work, uh, to, well, to this period, Lamorna Birch um, and his daughters, her painting of 1934, um, again, a, a monumental exhibition painting. And I think from this photograph that we have in some of the showcases, you can see that, how, again, how it's hung in the period. And her showing a rather lone figure, all her other RA uh, colleagues, all men of a certain age actually at this time. It's quite interesting, the age politics of, of the, the elected arti um, artists as well is something that we, is, is interesting to look when you have a whole history and the data, but again, this, this image shows that. So interesting because of course there weren't many, 
there weren't a, a, any female academicians for so many years up until that moment, and not so many afterwards. No, <coughs> but the, exi the mm. exhibition itself was a place where women artists often did exhibit. Yeah, so yeah. there's an interesting disjunction in some ways between the, the way in which it was open to women artists to, to exhibit, but they had very little role in the mm. hierarchy of the institution itself. Right, well, I'm going to quickly run through some of these images because just, I mean, you've seen them or you will see them hopefully when you go back to the exhibition, but some of these sculptures look so beautiful. This room is a very haunting room because it d dwells upon the war years and on some of the imagery around the, the First and the Second World War, which gives the whole space, I think, a, a, a weight and, and a, a sobriety that uh, is, is really powerful. Also, we wanted to talk about amateurs and also about works that were reject rejected. It's famously a place where amateur artists always have the chance to exhibit their work. Uh, and we wanted to, we chose someone who is, in many ways, the most famous amateur of all, a work by Winston Churchill. Uh, someone who's very closely associated with the Academy, but who sent in this work uh, into, the, into the 1947 summer exhibition under the name David Winter. And I'm not quite sure how many people realized or didn't. I think it would have been a bit uh, impolitic yeah. if it had been rejected. So I think quite a few people on the committee <laughs> must have known, oh, this is one of Winston's paintings, but uh, we must let it in. Chartwell might have given it away. I think so. <laughs> yeah, who lives there? Uh, and then... Uh, and, and then we also wanted to talk about the fact that, of course, one of the great and unfortunate stories of, uh, of, uh, of the summer exhibition is the, the sheer, the, the stories of rejection and, 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 uh, and, and the pictures, based, uh, thousands of pictures, of course, being turned down for display, but famous ones too, as well as uh, those uh, from the rest of us, and including this Wyndham Lewis uh, portrait of T.S. Eliot that was rejected and that caused a storm uh, and a controversy uh, on its rejection, didn't it? Yeah. So these are some of the stories we want to tell about architecture, about these astonishing sculptures that uh, one of my favorite pieces in the whole mm. show is this work uh, by uh, George Frampton of Lamia. And then also the ways in which this room, when you come into the, the post-war period, is I think in many ways, don't you think, Sarah, the room in which there's a sense of conflict and of difference where mm. modern pop painters like Peter Blake, uh, artists trying out very experimental forms of painting like Frank Bowling, were, uh, their works are on display in that room and were on display in the summer exhibition in those years alongside works which had a more conservative uh, uh, character mm. by artists like Munnings and the great portrait of the Queen by Amagoni, which was such a blockbuster picture. Mm. Then we come right up to the present with pictures that prove, I think, in many ways how in recent years, and even today's, uh, this year's exhibition is an example, it's a place of polemic and of sometimes of uh, quite powerful political pieces and uh, of anger sometimes about issues or debates. In this instance, a painting by the, the American artist Kitai, which attacks the critics of the day. Sarah brought out the fact that the critics and their press days in the 19th century. Well, Kitai had had a show of his works at the Tate, a retrospective of the Tate, which was savaged by the critics, by people like Andrew Graham Dixon, Brian Sewell. He was so angry about both the, the attacks that he received, but also about the fact that he thought that that critical onslaught on his own show at the Tate had actually contributed to the death of his wife, the artist, the American artist, Andrea, uh, Sandra Fisher. And so at the summer exhibition in 1997, the year of the sensation show, another kind of sensation happened, where Kitai exhibited this picture, which is a, the most bitter, raging attack on the critics that he saw had not only savaged him, but assassinated his wife. We also wanted to show the ways in which art, the whole new, the YBA is the whole sensation phenomenon found its way through into the summer exhibition too, uh, by, with the fact that people like Tracy Emin, uh, the 
the, the kind of avant-garde, uh, enfant terrible of, of early, of, of the 90s, uh, found their, way, their work into the exhibition through people like Peter Blake, academicians who welcomed new blood, new kinds of art mm. into the display. And it's a history of generations of artists, yeah. side by side as well. And I think that, again, is something that you don't get in many other exhibitions. Um, the summer exhibition allows that sort of layering of generations of the aesthetic friction of different styles as well. There aren't many exhibitions that allow um, that diversity to coexist. Yeah, good. This is Sarah's phrase, aesthetic friction. That's your phrase for the uh, yeah. Academy. These are just ones that got away. These are ones that got away. <laughs> Do you want to, yeah. Yeah, well, um, we requested this beautiful Thomas Lawrence, um, Mrs. Farron from um, the, the Met, and it wouldn't fit through the doors. Again, <laughs> practical, practical uh, notes of advice. You, you, it would if you turned it on its side, but you're not allowed to. It's too fragile. It, has to, right. it would have had to travel in a case upright um, by air, not by sea, and it was not allowed to go on its side, so we couldn't get it. Um, Landseer exhibited um, what we now know as the Monarch of the Glen, uh, another iconic image in 1851 as the Great Exhibition was happening in Hyde Park, a, a work that um, received a phenomenal amount of attention, but it's just been saved for the nation and Scotland uh, rightly very much want to make it part of their displays in Edinburgh, so we couldn't get that as well. So, but there are so many, um, so many paintings like that that we possibly could have asked for or ones that we did, ones that got away. Um, as well. Uh, bringing things inside to sculpture that's normally displayed outside. Um, and there's a, I think it's quite interesting as well, a lot, of, um, a lot of sculptors show maquettes for works, either smaller versions that then we see as public, much larger public sculptures, and that's still the case today. You see a lot of those, um, a lot of those examples. Yeah, and the way in which the, this current, the contemporary summer exhibition is embracing new kinds of media, uh, sometimes film or installation work, and here photography, of course, or a, a photographic image that's produced actually without a camera, and which in many ways offers an interesting analogue to the great abstract paintings of the, of the 20th century, Wolfgang Tillman. So we thought this would be a really great work with which to end the show, uh, that you'd see it as you walked again through the doorway. Um, it's juxtaposed with a, a, a Tracy Emin's ch chair of a very different scale, a very very different character but we thought uh, one of, I'll tell you one little anecdote if I may if we've got time to finish off with is that um, on the opening night on the private view uh, we, we, we had a quick pre, a little wander around the display just before everyone came just as a calm our nerves yeah to calm our nerves actually we were quite nervous that day weren't <laughs> yeah, we yeah very nervous uh, about how it all would and mm -hmm. uh, we found Pear our co-curator uh, from the academy standing in that final room with uh, the lighting person who'd been thinking about all the lighting and he was going he was with the lighting person. The lighting had, we had the light. It was quite, it was kind of quite light, but not bright. He was going, make it a bit lighter. Sorry, he's, he's German, so he's doing his German accent. I don't know, very badly. Make it lighter. And so the lighting guy was just going lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. Because what Pear wanted to do was to give that impression that I think you get in that final gallery that you suddenly walk into this bright white contemporary modern space filled with these very bright pictures and works of art. And it was amazing. Even minutes before people were walking into the display, he was still thinking really hard and concentratedly about the light that would make that last gallery work best of all. And I have to say that's one of the great legacies of this project for us, isn't it, Sarah? Mm. That the teams of people we've been working with, amazing. and just the amazing, all those art handlers that you saw yeah. in the photograph, all the current curators, all the people in learning, uh, the people who produced this catalogue with us, it's such an amazing team at the Academy. And, and, to, yeah, and to do this at the same time as, as the Rio 
opening yeah. and the, to put on the 250th summer exhibition with Grace and Perry, all that happening yeah. at the same time is, is quite a logistical achievement, I think. So what last thing we want to say to you, spread the word about the great spectacle. It's been, I mean, of course, quite rightly, Grace and Perry and the summer exhibition are getting so much attention. Good, that's right. But we would like the great spectacle and that whole long history to get attention too. Because what you get is 250 years worth of the summer exhibition. <laughs> Such good not value. Just one. It's 250 years for the price of one, or even less than. What's not to like? Yeah. And of course, you must go and buy the catalogue yeah. too. But, uh, yeah, so thank you for listening uh, to us today. We're very happy to answer any of your questions. Thank you very much. That was fascinating. Just one thing you mentioned about the paintings being... Um, I might have misunderstood, but the paintings being transported out of their frames, is that, did I get that right? Um, you said it was shaking in the lift. Some of them are not glazed. Some, some paintings oh, yeah, don't have glazed, glass, but, glass but on them. It was still in its, it's still frame. In its frame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I yeah. thought I must have misunderstood. Yeah, it's, just, it's quite interesting, so the works that are, are and are not glazed, because, yeah. and again, that has a huge, obviously, impact on lighting as well. And I have so. friends who have been come back from the exhibition raving about it, oh, saying, don't you. bother about the summer exhibition, <laughs> go to the green <laughs> Thank well, you very much, yeah. thank you. Um, I'm fascinated about the stipulated height that you hang the paintings, yeah. and one of them needing adjusting by half an inch. Does the Royal Academy assume that there is a medium height for the viewer? <coughs> or, no. Because, you know, some yeah. people are so much taller than others. Absolutely. So how do you work out yeah. what height you hang them at? And, and uh, different curators I've spoken to have different theories as well. Mm. And, of course, then there are um, teams that go around and have a, a think about the exhibition from accessibility points of view as well. Mm. Um, and so it's it sort of a good... And obviously each work is a different format. Um, so... I think quite a few creators have their... They do have a, 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 a number in their mind. And I, I think for Pear, it was 64 inches from the ground, if I remember correctly. Uh, but that, that's... Then I told that to someone else, and they said, 64? No, it's... 63 or something like that. <laughs> no, they do, they do, they do. That's what he said. 64, that's outrageous. I went, oh, really? Yes, it should be 63. Yeah. I was like, what? And when he said, and he said, actually, they work in inches because centimetres, if you say, could you make it go up a centimetre, I think the, tech, the technicians might, you know, there might be a fight. Yeah. Um, so in, an inch at least feels a little bit more substantial. But it, it, it's sort of one of those things that um, I think it's quite marmite amongst curators which, which, uh, which theory or which school of hanging they belong to. I don't think there's a house no. I don't think there is a house. I think it's up to the, each curator to... Uh... I think it's a kind of negotiation between the two. There's, there's conventions for each, I think, for a place like the Tate or for the National Gallery yeah. or for here and then, but the individual curators have a sort of their own freedom there. within that and then of course it's true, isn't it Sarah, that you know, if, if Christopher Lebron walks around or Tim Marlowe walks around and goes, I'm not happy with that display, then that changes it too. So there's yes, a number yeah. of people coming in. Especially for the contemporary artists. They, yeah. If they're not happy with the way their work is hung, they do have the power sometimes yeah. to say, can you, can you move that down a bit or up a bit? Yeah. I'll tell you another little instance of this. About, it's not so much about the hanging, but about the plinths that the works were put on. Yeah. So Tracy Emin's chair in the final gallery, that was put on. It all looked great. To my, to my eyes, it looked perfectly good. And, but Pear again said that plinth is about an inch too low. So we had a new plinth made to raise that chair slightly so that it didn't become too uh, modest and too small scale yeah. in comparison to the big tillmans behind. So even those sorts of issues are dwelt upon in great detail. There's a question, a gentleman in the centre. Thanks, you've uh, slightly touched on it already, but every year there's a lot of talk about the hang um, and the, the innovations in the hang. Uh, what, what can you tell us about the evolution of the hang over the, over the 
length of the yeah. exhibition? It's a really good question. Um, especially in the early 20th century, there was a sense that the hang, that very dense salon-style hang, where the frames touch one another, was becoming staid. And um, quite a few of the artists wanted to shape that up. And um, in the 60s, there was... Um, one of the head, one of the senior members of the of the hanging committee, Tom Monnington, who became president, he painted the walls white and went for a much sparser hang. So there's always there's often these kind of innovations. Some of you might remember Michael Craig Martin when he was what became the coordinator. Mm. Um, he painted the walls that very strong pink and blue, which I think you can see Grayson Perry being inspired by with his acid yellow and his baby blues and pinks. Um, so when um, an artist is appointed, it used to be called the senior hanger, which is quite, sort of quite a morbid term. And that was the, the person in charge of the exhibition used to be just the, the oldest artist on the team. And in the 90s, um, actually it might even be, no, it was later, it was in the 2000s, it was decided that that wasn't going to work anymore. And someone who really actually wanted to do the job because it's so many hours of labour, should be appointed the coordinator. And I think it was Chris Lebron, who is now the president, he wasn't then, became um, the coordinator of the show uh, and started to kind of... He painted the walls dark grey. Mm. It's often colour and the way that the hang is... But it's often... It comes from a, a space of dissatisfaction, I think. And, and, but it's funny because I think there's always that in the summer exhibition. No one's ever entirely happy with it. Someone's always, you know, disconcerted about where their work is. It's been skied. It's right skied up. or grounded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it, but I think that sort of, that friction, that tension, makes it change every year. Mm. And, and also stay the same. That's what, I, that's what fascinates me, is that long history that is pretty much the same format, and then there's all these little innovations around the hang. It's quite interesting. A couple of things to mention on that front. That um, this year's show, actually, in many ways, is returns to that very crowded kind of hang that was current mm. and obvious. Quite uh, traditional, uh, yeah, in some right. ways. And that's, but it's partly, that's been driven by uh, practical reasons. As Grayson has sometimes whispered to us, you've stolen my spaces. <laughs> so because we took the Western Rooms and Galleries 1 and 2, the, down, the ground floor summer exhibition space is smaller than it normally mm. is. And of course, they use the Sackler Rooms yeah, brilliantly prints, upstairs. Yeah. But those rooms are crowded, in part because they've had less space to play with. Also, Grayson Perry wanted a lot more works to be. There's a huge more, a number of works coming in. So if you go into Gallery 3 the, with that, bitter, that bright le lemon yellow, you'll see a very crowded hang that doesn't... Um... Are you claiming that the great spectacle is responsible? Well, that's <laughs> right. We're all, we're, we're, we're really created it. The other thing I want to mention, this is another uh, unashamed plug, but... Sarah and I, I'm not going to talk about the catalogue again, I promise. But we have, to, but in the catalogue, we have, you, every copy has a bookmark, which alerts, us, alerts you to another project that Sarah and I have worked on uh, at the Paul Mellon Centre in combination with our colleagues at the Royal Academy. And we think this is a pretty astonishing complement to the show and to the catalogue. I'm just going to, don't, I, I might make you feel sick because I'm just going to flick through yeah. some. But we've produced this online publication called The Royal Academy Summer Exhibition, A Chronicle, 1769 to 2018. And this offer, we commissioned more than 90 people, including actually a couple of people here in the yes, audience. James Finch, we see over there. Barbara's there. Uh, yeah, yeah, Barbara's here too. To write a short piece about every single summer exhibition. So we've published a piece of writing, and piece, sometimes pieces of film, interviews with people like Christopher mm. Lebrun, about every single show. It's all free. 
There's no password. There's no paywall. You can go and see it. The other thing we've done in this chronicle is that we've digitized every single summer exhibition catalog going back to 1769. So you can explore every single summer exhibition catalog throughout the last 250 years and with this accompanying commentary by a galaxy of really interesting writers and um, filmmakers. www.chronicle250.com Chronicle250.com Print that on your minds. Yeah. And then you can read that you can go to the show, you can read the catalogue, and then by the end of all of that, you'll know more about the summer exhibition than anyone else. Chronicle250.com. Thank you for being uh, such a generous uh, audience, and we've really loved giving you a behind-the-scenes tour of the great spectacle. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.